Hello, freaks, and welcome to Radical Research. This is episode 82, and uh, we're going to do something a little bit different, Hunter and I. Hello, Hunter, by the way. Hello. Hello. <laughs> there, you, there you are. And uh, we're going to go ahead and do something a bit different with this. We are just going to chat. We have no plan. We have no snippets. Those will be dropped in post-chat. But we're going to talk about Fate's Warning. And the reason for that is multifold. One, it's one of our very favorite bands mutually. I think if you put our enthusiasm toward bands that we love mutually, things like King Crimson or Black Sabbath, they take up a great part of the Hunter Jeff pie chart. Fate's Warning is one of those. They're, they're, way, they're way top tier. And... Um, it's also on the occasion that I wrote a book about them and have that coming out in July, in mid-July. Uh, I'm not really here to pump it, but it does seem like good timing to mention it and to put this out. Uh, I think we always knew we were going to do a Fate's Warning episode on this podcast, and here it is. If you are interested in the book, you can go to fateswarningbook.com and order it. There's so much to talk about with this band. Where do you think we should start? I I, I am curious about your entry. Uh, well, in, yeah, I, in so phase. yeah, okay, so yeah, I think that's where we should start, and I think you you and I have, I mean, uh, given our age gap, we have very different entry points into this band. Mm. Um, so who wants to go first? Well, I guess I'll go first because it chronologically makes a little sense. Maybe um, we are ten years apart, you and I. Um, so in 85, uh, which made me 15 or 16 years old in that year, I picked up a compilation called the best of metal blade and there was a band called fate's warning on it. Now I had, I'd been following metal blade and metal and everything, you know, since the early eighties. So fate's warning was a name I had definitely come across. I had seen the ads for night on Brocken in various magazines. And even for, I think the specter was in was brand new at that time so I knew a little bit that there was the second album by this band, but I really never just picked up on them. So I got this um, Best of Metal Blade comp, and it had two Fate's Warning songs on it, Damnation from the first album and The Apparition from Spectre Within. On this without a meaning, you shed
while there was a lot on that compilation that I liked, some of it I already knew, these were the two songs that I gravitated toward after first hearing them. And, and I just kept playing them over and over and over and over. <laughs> I became obsessed <laughs> real quick, just based on those two songs. And, you know, it, it's maybe no surprise, but those are, you know, if you were going to collect all the, all the greatest Fates Warning songs, those two are always going to be mentioned. So that, of course, piqued my interest. And I had a friend who had Spectre Within, so we listened to a good bit to that. I, I didn't own it. You know, this is the days where you're not exactly able to buy everything you want. And there was a lot coming out then uh, that was interesting. So I would I'd have to choose wisely. Anyway, fast forward to 1986, and I'm, I'm really obsessed with this band. And I'm looking forward to the third album, Awaken the Guardian, which is actually the first one that I owned. And I, and I got that right away. And um, while I found it, challenging and a little bit off-putting at first just because I, I found it hard to penetrate I found it kind of difficult to to understand at first mm. um I kept working at it and it was only maybe three four listens before I was able to to really grasp it but at first it was very mysterious to me and a lot more complicated than the previous stuff I wasn't surprised with the direction they took because there's a lot of pretty uh you know extended uh, arrangement type songs on Spectre Within but when Awaken came out and I, I acclimated to it, I became just as obsessed with that as I had been with the, the previous stuff. It made me a lifelong fan. And in fact, there's a bit about this in the book, in the intro of the book, where uh, I, had, I had gone through a really hard breakup, my first breakup, you know, the first heartbreak that you go through. And it was really, really, really hard. I had been having some very dark thoughts and uh, some depressive moods. and. I would say Awaken the Guardian, particularly the song Guardian, pulled me through it more than I think anything. Even my wonderful mom who talked me through a lot of it, uh, even my friends, kind of a refuge for me. So I wrote Jim Matheos. Well, I, I didn't write Jim. I wrote Fates, a letter just thanking them for that. And I got a letter back from Jim. And he explained to me that while he doesn't write back to everybody that writes to them because they just don't have time because they were getting a ton of mail at that point, he found my letter striking and he was honored that you know and he said it's always nice to when you get a letter from a fan and you you find that you've really helped them with something really difficult in their life so he wrote me back and that was kind of the start of a very 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 long protracted introduction to each other because I would have things to do with him through the years whether it was as a as a college radio dj for my metal show I did an interview with him for perfect symmetry talked to him for my fanzine symposium for the inside out album later on i worked at inside out um worked with him then <laughs> metal maniacs before then you know i i uh, visited the band in the studio for disconnected album in 2000 so i just we had a lot to do with each other over the years mean deviation you know my first book he was very helpful in getting me stuff on fates and granting interview so you know just uh, we just had a lot to do with each other but that's really a long way of saying yeah it really begins in 85 86 and um they they've meant everything to me it's just a band i've followed hardcore all the way all the way for better or for worse you know what i mean it's just sure. um they are one of the absolute all-time classics for me. So your story. So I, um, I like am unreserved in my worship for Borovoy Kurgan, 1991 to mid-1994. <laughs> Very specific. Yeah. Love you, Bory. 
<laughs> we, we part company there. Um, and he had mentioned Fate's Warning in uh, a number of contexts that didn't necessarily have to do with Fate's Warning. Um, it just, it, it, the use of clean guitars, I remember, um, I think it was like a Wicked Mariah um, demo review that <laughs> maybe mentioned Fate's Warning. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, like, so I <laughs> was at all, of all places, at Walmart and found a copy of parallels mm. and i got it so this is like summer of 93 and i don't know what i expected it to sound like but it didn't sound like what i wanted and i didn't like it at all um it's kind of like my early dream theater problem mm. like i just didn't like you know metal with clean singing i mean to me like at the time you parallels was barely even metal and so anyway i shelved it for a while summer of 94 rolls around i got into gamma ray got into dream theater and so i had this copy of parallels sitting around put it on blew me away in like every possible way It was just it was my time for that album mm -hmm. and i remember at the time thinking that they were from seattle because they had like a comparably like melancholy kind of approaches queen drug that's interesting i don't remember when i was disabused of that and found out that they were actually from connecticut but yeah um yeah anyway i i just thought that you know these two bands must be from the same town i think i'd also gotten into sanctuary around that time too um so so, and they were they were touring partners in the early 90s yeah 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 so um yeah so and and i vaguely remember seeing the video for point of view on headbangers ball oh yeah uh -huh. oh yeah okay yeah so 
that, I mean, that was it for me. And so, so I had sort of an interesting journey back through the catalog. It was kind of convenient because I got into the same year that Inside Out came out, which I loved. Um, I, you know, and, and, you know, you and I, I think probably feel the same way about that album. It's certainly not as consistent as Parallels, but the high points and, you know, Monument really kind of one of the great metal songs of the 90s. Yeah, we'll talk about uh, that album a little more later because um, there's there's, yeah. there's a point that I bring out in the writing of the book, but also just kind of my in my personal journey with that album. Like I kind of realized something about it that I hadn't prior to starting work on the book. So I just want to talk about that. But yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But so yeah, for me, going back was really, I mean, frankly, kind of difficult um, at first. A perfect symmetry was not that hard for me. Um, to get my arms around because I loved tech metal at that point. I was going to say, yeah. that's really kind of yeah. like the techiest um, Fate's Warning record. I mean, I think you know, Zonder's drumming on, you know, part of the machine. <laughs> I mean, that, that, some groundbreaking shit. issue with um no exit at first hmm. um and it, it frankly was easier it, it i you and i have talked about this over time i mean it took me years to really get into no exit it was actually easier for me to get into 
awaken than it was no exit wow um, okay there's like a warmth uh about awaken that i found missing from no exit okay yeah i can i could see that i yeah i think it's earthier certainly more organic feeling no exit gets into this kind of more uh, you, well it, it's it is the sort of bridge between guardian and symmetry right it's almost like a prog thrash album can, know, it, i mean it can get thrashy it, 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 yeah it, it, it borders on that it's probably their heaviest it's probably yeah, i their, would say so yeah their most blunt and their most aggressive for sure How did you um, respond to John Archer's voice when you first heard it? Because, you know, he's uh, he's make or break for some people, certainly. So it probably served me well that I had been, you know, an indie rock, you know, sort of post-punk, whatever listener before I got into the Arch era. So I was used to really, you know, characteristic, idiosyncratic voices that sort of you know ran perpendicular to received notions of what is you know technically good hmm. um I, so i had i had an appreciation for vocal character 
by the time that I had started to reckon with Arch. Perfect. Um, and, and, and I just, his approach was just so poetic and it just it was so, it, it really kind of felt like vocal sorcery to me. I had <laughs> never heard anything like it. I mean, it was, it was, you know, like he was, you know, performing magic tricks with his voice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sure. I mean, it's, it's acrobatic. I, I remember. Uh, yeah. That, that's the, that's the perfect word for it. One of the funniest, well, the only funny thing really about the uh, watching the reunited band play uh, Awaken the Guardian in Atlanta when they did the two Guardian shows, one in Germany and one in Atlanta. Uh, I was at the Atlanta one. And, and the funny thing about it was like watching all these people trying to, um, you know, they're singing, we were singing along. We're all singing along because we just know that album inside and out. It's in our DNA. But trying to like wield these impossible vocal lines along with him was kind of <laughs> hilarious because yeah. we're, we're all cracking. We're all just like, like falling by the wayside at some point <laughs> can't, can't can't hang and he's up there doing it you know but it was just it was funny because it, those are those are tough to navigate if you actually try to sing them no matter what oh, kind it's of saying yeah, yeah yeah you're you're right i mean for a lot of people he is you know a, a of a divisive presence but i mean it's it's hard to deny his genius objectively you know sure like, I, I would, no yeah there, there is no other john arch Rain did a hell of a job in While Heaven Wept uh, mimicking him. Yeah. Um, but there's, no, there's, there's only one John Arch. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up While Heaven Wept. I mean, that band is one that is unapologetically, deeply influenced by Fate's Warning. There's even that song on Vast mm -hmm. Ocean's Lacrimose, To Wander the Void, I think it is, that they dedicate to Fate's Warning. And it, it sounds very Fate's Warning-ish. Uh, very deliberate, but of course, Tom Phillips is uh, a massive fan. Incidentally, I was standing right next to him 
during the Guardian show in, in Atlanta. And I was feeling very lucky about that because we're, we're friends and all, but like, it just, it was nice to be there with uh, a guy sure. that I, I know is feeling it in the exact same way I am. Yeah. Um, we actually, <laughs> in the book, there's an appendix uh, and it's a bunch of lists, you know, the band members give me certain lists, a lot of lists about UFO. That This was a band that all the members seem to have mutual love for. Yeah, I mean, it was across the board, Bobby Jarzombek, Joey Vera, uh, Ray Alder, Jim Mateos, John Arch. I mean, everybody loves you. Mark Zonder, everybody loves UFO in that band. It was just kind of a funny thing because that's they're kind of this odd band out for a lot of people. So they gave me lists. But anyway, uh, my list, I rank the albums. I rank the Fates albums. It's just part of the, part of the appendix thing. I asked Tom Phillips to do the same thing. And I think I think we have the exact same list, except for like one is flip-flopped, you know, in, 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 the, in the next position with another. It's just, I mean, it's uncanny. We literally turned in the same list. It, it sort of cancels each other out. Wow. Uh, pointless. <laughs> um, it was kind of funny to see that. <laughs> I'm um, sure. Yeah. <laughs> This might be a good time to talk about something that really sticks in my craw regarding the Fates fan base. And they're all brothers to me and, and sisters. So I'm, I'm not pointing any particular fingers. And I don't really address this in the book because it's my book and I didn't really want to even go into it. But I do not care for the Arch versus Alder argument that seems to come up a ton. I mean, it was there before social media. You know, you'd see it in discussion. The, the, the first time that I ever heard anyone make that argument was actually Matt Johnson in the, I think it was his Spiral Architect brash bit. And he said something about Alder was the ultimate Fates warning vocalist. Yeah. I am also completely uninterested in that argument. It, it, it seems silly, especially if like you It's and like I. saying, uh, you know, it's like uh, saying that, that you know, Diano era maiden is somehow less legitimate than Dickinson. Well, for sure. And, and you know, reflexively, you, you have people that just, oh, I only like the Diano stuff, you know. Um, and I, and, and there's, there, of course, are tastes. There are there's such things as, you know, your taste. And if, if somehow that Iron Maiden changed so much that you didn't like them on Number of the Beast, but it really, it's essentially the same band with a, with a singer of different character. The, the, thing, the thing that I find almost inarguable about it is Dickinson and Diano are both amazing for what they're they're doing with that band and i think arch and alder are absolutely incredible for what what they've been given to sing over and i just don't you know again i think people can can certainly choose their favorites or or prefer one over the other i guess emotionally i'm always gonna be tied to guardian so much that arch maybe becomes my favorite but then i look at all the alder stuff i think he's blazing on no exit i think he's killer on that album he's young he's he's hitting those highs he's he had a lot thrown at him that's a so, very yeah, that's refuge denied highs on that yeah, album yeah and he's um, got a, but, amazing but but two you know the elegance of his performance on perfect symmetry i mean he evolved so quickly yeah he did um, and and like you said he had a ton thrown at him and for him to make that move from you know one album to the other in two years I mean, that's a startling accomplishment. Oh, for um, sure. They're, they're, yeah. Look, they're, they're both incredible artists. I see no reason to pick between them. I don't either. Personally. It, it happens a lot in this fan base. It's crazy. 
it's always bothered me again because i just i i love the the full discography i love the range that they've done in their career and i also think i, I also think that parallels it's so great and there's just no way john arch would work on that it just you know no. imagine him singing uh eye to eye i mean i just can't i can't hear it no um he, yeah his his uh, his approach um just isn't applicable to to you know such a straightforward set of songs right right um, it's kind of the same thing like imagining him being dream theater's vocalist yeah yeah sure probably wouldn't have worked out no i, I yeah and, and those guys have said as much and i, I think archer said as much uh, and the guys in Dream Theater. In fact, I know that uh, I did a little. There's a few sidebars in the book, and um, one of them is just a brief. I called it, I think, a brief oral history of the John Arch Dream Theater auditions. You know, I talked to Mike Portnoy, John Petrucci, and John. They all kind of give their views on on that little window in time, and mm-hmm. they all kind of say, "Yeah, you know, it just it. You know, we love John, but it probably wouldn't have worked for where we were going. And John said it wouldn't have worked for his own reasons. And right, it's cool." Yeah, as much as we would have loved to seen something like that, you know, there's there are reasons things don't work out. And and really, you know, let's fast forward, uh, you know, John Arch stayed out of uh, music for a long time after he and Fates parted ways in 87. And it was what, 2003. He 2003, came back, yeah. He came back with the twist of fate, which found him joining back up with Jim Atheos, also Mike Portnoy on drums and Joey Vera on bass. So um, great lineup. Amazing. Really, album. really great album or EP or whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, I, yeah, it yeah. works as an album because after after the second and final song, uh, you know, you're kind of exhausted. It's an emotionally riveting and beautiful journey. And um, yeah, I almost don't wouldn't want more. It, it, there's there's plenty given on that one. And, and his voice sounded fantastic. And of course, um, Arch Mateos have gone on to do two more records that are fantastic.
thankfully, we got more of him and we got more of him in, in a Fates Warning context. And in fact, I, I think of those Archmatheos albums as auxiliary Fates albums, simply because on the first one, Sympathetic Resonance, you have a lineup that is all Fates vets. So, right. so that works. And then you get the second one, Winter Ethereal, which has not only some of those Fates vets, but other people as well, Sean Malone being one of them, others. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool to... Uh, to have this sort of auxiliary lineup, you know, this sort of, um, I wouldn't call it a farm team. That, that would be um, insulting, but you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> yeah, it would. I'm just going to stick with auxiliary. How about that? All right. That's, that sounds good. The other thing I want to <laughs> say about the arch, alder, arch versus alder crap that you tend to hear, I do have to wonder about if some of these people are too focused on the vocalist because while that's very very important especially in a band like fates i hear the same band on no exit as i heard on awaken the guardian and in fact it's the same guys but i just mean stylistically yeah it's a little different you can you can you know you can compare and contrast all day but i think you'll find a lot of similarities while you're doing that um mm -hmm. it's clearly the same band you know it's clearly a Matheos doing what they do, being that great guitar tandem, both in, in leads and in, in rhythmic syncopations. And I feel like people are, I guess, not listening to the music and so concerned with the vocalist that you're losing Fate's Warning. And Fate's Warning is, is a band. It's musicians. It's not just a vocalist. And I feel like, that, again, this that, that always gets lost in the arch versus all their arguments and comparisons. I, right. I, I find it pointless and kind of a waste of time, frankly. Yeah, I agree. Let's talk about a little bit about the Matheos Arresti tandem. Now, of course, uh, on the first two albums, we had Victor Arduini on guitar, and he did some writing along with Jim and is very important uh, in establishing the Fate's Warning sound. But when Frank Arresti came on in 86 for Guardian and um, stayed for a good 10 years, he was perfectly matched to Matheos. And uh, their lead styles were very complementary. You don't need a lyric sheet to find out which one's playing which. You can usually pick it out if, if you've studied Fates at all, but they're, they're just a great team, great combo. And also, not just in the lead department, but like on Guardian and Symmetry particularly, they are writing rhythms for the verse parts and the chorus parts. And sometimes, especially in the verse parts, these rhythms are not lock tight and the same exact thing as you will get yeah. with a lot of two guitar bands they're consciously doing complementary rhythmic work where they're playing different things but they're kind of meshing it together and it's it's a it's a fantastic sound how they weave this and um i'm wondering if if you've what your take is on on the Mateos arresti team and how how important you think that is to the fate sound I, I, for me one of the really the most you know, important teams ever. I mean, like, you know, like we're talking for me, like Sherman Dinner, mm -hmm. uh, like important. Yeah. Again, extremely complimentary. And as their music gets more minimal, I almost feel like the relationship between their styles becomes even starker. Um, mm -hmm. and, and rhythmically, but, but also... Again, I hate to bring up Monument. <laughs> bring up Monument, yeah. But I mean the the really, really tactile, almost like avant-garde lead work in that song. I mean, it's a real key difference between 
um, Matthäus and Oresti, but, and, and I think that um, people tend to think about Oresti being maybe the more, um, you know, sensuous, dainty player between the two, but like, I feel like he took a lot of risks too. I feel like both of them did. I feel like, you know, they, it's kind of like a marriage. Yeah. You know, like you think a marriage is going to be like 50, 50. Sometimes it's 90, 10. And, you know, sometimes right. it's 70, 30. I feel like they did the same thing. Like yeah. they, they really played off of each other in a, like a, a symbiotic way that is unlike most other guitar teams. Yeah. I, I think people need to, well, we'll play maybe a bit from Monument, especially that lead part where uh, you've got Arresti doing that infamous chink, 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 yep. chink, 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 chink. Uh, he, he, he notes in the book, uh, in my interview with him, that he uh, got that from Al Dimiola, you know, just got the idea of that, yeah. uh, of that technique. But that's just so signature. That's just one of the, one of the great moments in a, a really great song. Uh, I wouldn't hesitate to call it legendary in their discography. I mean, it's just it's just a, a top tier favorite of just about every fan. And then after that, you get Matheos on that acoustic lead. Oh it's, man, it's exotic and it yeah, it's it's um. I'm glad you mentioned it because it really is a, an excellent view into their tandem work. As a drummer, you were starting to drum along with doing a lot of your, you know, formative listening in the early to mid nineties. Mm -hmm. uh, you are getting into fates uh, as well as a bunch of other stuff, of course, but what did, um, did the drummers, Steve Zimmerman, 
or Mark Zonder have an impact on you? And if so, I'd like to hear your comments on that. And, and two, just, just how you feel about them as, as drummers and what they brought to Fates. Mark Zonder is still having an impact on me. Um, his linear approach to metal drumming, which I later, I discovered linear drumming later as I got into you know, funk and fusion and, and just studying the drums. Explain that to be for people who don't know what linear drums okay, are. Okay, sorry. So basically a linear pattern is a pattern where every, where the limbs do not play at exactly the same moment in the pattern. So there's, there's no simultaneity between the limbs. So the left foot the left hand the right hand and the right foot are creating a pattern but nothing ever hits the drum at the same time steve shelton obviously falls into this category too hmm. um and there's just certain true. players that that tend to it's an easy trap to get into because like if once you actually figure out how to play linear patterns well like they just sound badass <laughs> um and and mark zonder is one of really the like the real pioneers of linear drumming in metal and so his work on particularly on perfect symmetry and parallels i mean it's still having i just recorded the drums for the forthcoming sculpture album yeah and there were things that i did on that and i we were chris and i were playing back the drum tracks and i was like I think that is literally like a Mark Zonder lick note for note. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, not the dude, the dude had a huge, huge impact on me as much as, as much as Reiner, as much as um, death era Hoagland, Steve Zimmerman did not have an influence on me exactly, but I'll say this about Zimmerman and you and I have talked about this with, like other drummers like Lars Ulrich I would I would not want to hear Mark Zonder on Awaken the Guardian no no um I love the feel of it yeah. it has incredible character and integrity and he, his style even though it might not it might be you know sort of technically primitive compared to you know to Zonder whatever came later like he made those albums feel the way they felt, and I, I just think I think he's a great player. Oh, I, I love a lot of his that. Ideas. I, I, yeah. I love I love his style. If I'm not air guitaring to awaken the guardian as when I when I get enthralled with it and in, in, in a listen, um, I'm often air drumming. Like his parts, yeah. his parts are are recognizable. A lot of character, very memorable, and just and just fun to to follow. And um, yeah. He's yeah. a great, um, he's a great drum writer. He talks in the book a bit about how when they were writing Guardian, he was just, he kept pushing not only the band, as I think all the band were pushing themselves at that point to just get more complicated and see, you know, how uh, long of a phrase you could write or whatever, you know, but he, he was pushing his drums that way too. He was like, well, how, how can I make this even more challenging? You know what I mean? Like he was yeah. setting up a, a certain goal for himself to knock down and, 
so he was you know right along with the band it, you know during during that era and, and of course no i love his drumming on no exit uh might be my my favorite of his i, I if you listen to the drum track uh throughout ivory gave dreams i mean he's oh man he is yeah. so good and interesting on that and um again not one i'd want to have zonder on Am I, am I glad that Zonder came on for Perfect Symmetry? Absolutely. It's kind of the same thing as Alder. You know, I'm glad he's on Parallels and not Arch, uh, even though right. you know, I love these guys. It's just, you know, they, they kind of came in when they had to come in. I mean, Jim Jim was good at a lot of things for Fates, but uh, one thing he was exceptionally good at was like picking members. Because now, you know, I mean, for the last 10 or 15 years, they've had Bobby Jarzon back on drums. And well, if you're going to, if you're going <laughs> to, if you're going to replace Zonder, bring in a guy like bobby might as well be bobby well yeah because for me bobby splits the difference between zimmerman and zonder perfectly he's got that technical finesse and that sophisticated approach and you know he reads music and he writes music like he's he he knows that's he knows it technically but he can also be a just this kind of badass metal drummer in the way that zimmerman was um and be a little more gutsy in the way that zimmerman was and i i really like um, what he's done on some of the later albums with fates uh and if you listen to some live stuff that he did when, he, when he's playing like either zonder's parts or zimmerman's you know he, he he has a great approach it's it's respectful but it's also like he's throwing in his little bit of spice <laughs> I view Bobby Jarzombek greatest living metal drummer and greatest living drummer for George Strait now apparently too. Wait a minute, did you not know he was playing with George Strait? That is awesome. 
<laughs> yeah, good, good, good for him. Man. Oh yeah, no, it's a good. Pick I, for, no, no sure. man, I, I got, uh, I got respect for George Strait. Well, you know, he's down with that. He's That's a real fucking yeah. badass. I had no idea. Oh, you didn't? Okay, yeah, that made that, my night. Yeah, no, I think as of maybe about a year and a half ago, he joined. And, wow, um, good for him, man. And Fates is, you know, sort of, yeah. you know, on hiatus. I, you know, there, there's been talk of no more albums for sure. Um, so he's not doing anything with them i mean the guy will always have a job but yeah fuck it, it and he likes country music apparently according i was talking to jim about it a little bit and he's like yeah bobby's really into it you know it's just kind of always been one of his things and you know he's texas boy so that, well, makes, that makes some boy. sense yeah. yeah yeah um cool. the thing i wanted to talk about inside out the, the album is um i i always had this viewpoint of it that it was kind of a lesser version of parallels and i liked it when it came out but I never loved it as much as Parallels. And it always was in the shadow of Parallels. And while I still can't say I love it as much as Parallels, I listened to that album probably more than any other while writing the book, um, just because certain elements of, of that chapter or that era for them made me go back and, and re-listen re a lot. And yeah. um, what I found about it was, uh, it's not in fact a lateral step that I thought it was. Uh, I think the first side of it, if you want to split it, is very parallels but then you get to the second side and you've got something like inward bound and monument and afterglow mm -hmm. um, and even face the fear um these don't i couldn't see any of those on parallels so that you know i i just don't think those have the parallels vibe i think there's something else there so it, I they, agree are, with that. they are in fact progressing still um and that was kind of a re revelation for me because i just had never really looked at it that way uh and i'm glad i look at at it now because for me it now stands out a bit more it, well you know the the problem is is that first side and you get you know, something like pale fire which is very parallels very um right. and so i mean it, it does kind of create this you know mirage of sameness um yeah but yeah no i i, I it, you know it, there were those bands like Enslaved that progressed so drastically from album to album for so long um, that you get used to that momentum. And then when they progress a little more subtly, it doesn't feel like they are. And here's the genius of Chimotheos uh, and Fate's Warning is Inside Out did what it did. There's a whole story about the commercial side of, of the band's existence at that point. But um, in 1997, instead of going more in that direction uh which it, they had seemed to be going for a long time it was kind of you know it seemed like parallels and inside out were this kind of peak of where they had been heading uh what do you do after that you 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 know a lot of bands would just tend to follow and like you say with enslaved kind of just put out you know just kind of stop stop the the forward evolution you kind of you kind of slow down a little bit right mm -hmm. um what they did was put out one album length song a pleasant shade of gray it sounded a bit different than anything else they'd ever done. It still sounded very fates, but they still evolved. And I think on album number eight, if you're doing that uh, and you're challenging yourself and your listeners that far along, I think that's a triumph for sure. I have mixed feelings about Pleasant Shade of Grey, but I, I, will, I will say that I've always liked it live more than I like it on record. And I can say that having seen it twice on that tour, um, listening to it on the Still Life live album, 
Um, mm. I, th I think it comes across better. Um, but it's, I, it's an album I also came um, over the years to, to really appreciate a lot more than I did when it came out. But I, I just like that move, especially in 1997. If you think about what was happening in metal and rock at that oh, time, yeah. this could not have been a more uncool move. But yet it was a, an odd success for them. Like they toured more than they ever had because they had demand on it and they were playing the whole album which sounds like it it would fall apart and and be a disaster but it wasn't it was great um you had joey vera from Mormon saint on bass good move and a new lineup basically you know you're you've you've got zonder alder and matheos standing in the ashes of the inside out fallout and they brought in kevin moore too who would go on to play a lot with jim and osi and really kind of swimming against the tides of coolness 
helped Fate's Warning. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I think there was still a market for muso-oriented metal, rock, whatever. You know, there was there was a huge gap in the market for sure. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, those bands filled it. You make a really good point. I still think it was pretty ballsy and, and probably, you know, not, not a lot of labels would have accepted it, but Brian Slagle, Metal Blade was always hands off with fates just do what you want you know i trust you guys <laughs> um, and, it, and it turned out well for them and then you know we get into the 2000s i want to mention this briefly you know we get disconnected in fwx which disconnected is one that i have come to like a lot more over the years fwx still kind of still kind of cold on fwx but i like i like moments any any thoughts on those you kind of oh kinda yeah get- yeah i i came around to disconnected a lot more like it probably like I don't know, 2008, yeah. thereabouts. Yeah. Um, yeah, FWX, um, other than um, Another Perfect Day, pretty, I mean, I haven't owned it ever. I mean, it's been, I got rid of it, like, God, I don't know, man, like at least 10 or 12 years ago. But you, so, yeah, I, I, I don't, I have no feeling for it. Um and as you know, not a lot of feeling for anything after it. Yeah, that's where we that's where we definitely part. I mean, I, yeah. I, I like I even like FWX more than you. I love River Wide Ocean Deep. A soothing voice And then we get into, yeah, the, the albums that you just haven't had much interest in. They they had a long gap where they only toured for about nine years, uh, finally came back. Arresty was back in the band. 
for Darkness in a Different Light in 2013. Uh, this was their first studio album with Jar Zombek on drums. Uh, and then, of course, Alder and Matthäus and Vera. Really strong album. The next one, Theories of Flight. I think if you talk to fans into Modern Fates, they'll tell you that Theories of Flight is a Fates classic, no matter what the era is. And I'll put it up there too. Uh, this was this was a really big surprise for a lot of people. There was something about the inspiration and the writing for Theories of Flight that captured the Fates Warning essence. And I think the Fates Warning essence is something to talk about too, because no matter if you're listening to Still Remains off Disconnected or Face the Fear off Inside Out or No Exit or Night on Brocken, I, I think there's an essence there that is, yes, it's probably rooted in Jim's writing, um, mm. but I think essence is really important. I think Queensryche lost the essence completely. I don't think you can, like, if you listen to something like Q2K or um, ah, fucking, well, I don't know. Here in, here in uh, the now frontier. Uh, that American Soldier, any of those later albums, like, they have almost nothing to do with that first run between right. the EP and Promised Land. And, and I think if you lose that essence, you lose yourself. You know what I mean? And, and I don't think Fate's ever lost itself. So I like that aspect. There's always a thread a very strong thread of that melancholy Connecticut metal, no matter where they're at musically. Day Good Night, possibly the final album, the one that came out two years ago, goes a lot of different directions and I think deliberately states here's sort of the span that we've been doing for the last 20 years, uh, all in one album. It's their longest album. And to date, I think it's, yeah, I believe, I believe it's going to be the final one from what everybody uh, in the band is saying. So there you have it. I wanted to 
talk about the melancholy aspects of fates before we wrap this up. I hesitate to always <laughs> compare them or put them in the same basket as Queensryche and Dream Theater, but you kind of have to because they are the big three of progressive metal. I mean, it, it, right. it's just as, as obvious as the big four, quite honestly. And um, you don't get that brooding, sad, melancholy element in the other two bands so much. I think Queensryche has had it. Yeah, uh, certainly not in Dream Theater. Not Dream Theater, but I think with Fates, it's, it's so signature to their sound. There's almost a, a hopelessness to some of the music. Oh yeah, no, it's. I mean, the, musically they have they have had aspects of doom before, but I think I think lyrically, uh, yes, thematically, mood wise, there's a lot of doom because um, something like nothing left to say or yeah. chasing time. These are very sad songs, and it doesn't a pleasant shade of gray. The entire thing. Yeah, sure. Um, it's melancholy as fuck, and it's hard to crawl out of and. They've always had that. Uh, it's a really gloomy sort of thing, yet they remain really melodic. Uh, there is a brightness yeah. to a lot of their material. It's it, it's an interesting element that they have. And I'm just kind of curious if that's something that you noticed right away when you started listening to the band or kind of curious of your thoughts on, on that aspect of their New England autumnal sort of thing. Yeah, totally. And I think there's a reason that people who like Fate's Warning are also in the things like the cure and joy division. Mm, yeah. Um, that, that's not like the most difficult bridge to cross. Um, and it is a, a real authentic kind of melancholy, you know, there, yeah. there's no affectation to it. I mean, it's, it is hardcore sad. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I've always attributed that to new England autumns. Yeah. <laughs> even even when the band started to bring on members from texas and, and california there was still no matter what that melancholy that autumnal thing that i right. um that marks their music I, I guess it's simply jim's writing if you listen to his solo albums or if you listen to even some osi stuff or if you listen to a number of things he's done tuesday the sky like you're going to hear a kind of sadder take on things uh, rather than brightness, happiness. Uh, there, and there's never sort of a, a too obvious approach in trying to be heavy. Do you know what I mean? Like it, right, right, right. The, the heaviness yeah. comes through the emotion, basically. Yep. So whether you're listening to Specter Within or Long Day, Good Night, like it's there. And um, yeah, just there's a million other things we could talk about, I suppose, with this band, but we should probably wrap it up. I did write a lot about them if you're interested. So, oh, uh, totally. If I may mention fateswarningbook.com, uh, <laughs> check, check that out. Um, <laughs> it's been fun talking about fates. Is there anything else you want to mention about them? Nah, man, it's been a blast as usual. Yeah. Uh, we will be back with episode 83 on Skinyard. We're actually going to go to Seattle. If you don't know anything about Skinyard, look them up in the meantime. Uh, we are we're fans, obviously. And uh, we find them to be probably uh, very much ground zero for what became the Seattle sound. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. We will, uh, we'll, we'll dissect them, take them apart next time. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Fate's warning. 